Please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. Tonight we're going to cover the first four verses. I'm really excited to begin the book of Hebrews. Knowing Jesus is our greatest passion and priority and privilege in life, and this letter is written to a group of believers where they're tending to drift away from Christ, to put other things in a greater priority of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews shows us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Church, I think it's the same tendency for us to minimize Jesus the longer that we quote-unquote mature in Jesus Christ. Think, for instance, if your life is in crisis and someone comes to you and says, have you sought Jesus in the crisis that you're in? Your tendency might be, don't give me that pat answer. But yet when we were new in the Lord, if you're new in the Lord, we believed in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And the longer that we walk with the Lord, the more that we can get to a place where Jesus is kind of old hat. This is my prayer for us as we study this book over the next several months, is that we would come to that place of being in awe of Jesus Christ. How long has it been since you've just full on been in awe of Jesus? that your mind has been blown by who he is, his love for you, his promise that he's going to come back for us. And so the theme of this book is Jesus greater than. As we go through the book, it's showing us that Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the high priests. He's greater than our doubt. He's greater than rules and religion, all of those things. And it's a focus upon Jesus Christ. You can't lose with a letter like that. Amen? So let's pray together and ask that God would bless our study of the book of Hebrews. Father, we fix our eyes upon Jesus. We come to to look at your son. Jesus, we love you. No matter if we're new in the Lord or unsaved or have been walking with the Lord for years, we ask for a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we look at Christ exalted, May you remind us of who Jesus is, and may we be moved and touched. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. Lord, through this whole study, this book of Hebrews, would you bless it by your grace. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's do a little bit of background before we get into this book, because it's important to ask some fundamental questions. Who's the author? Who's the human author? Anybody got that under wraps? As you'll notice, as we get into verse 1, there's no introduction of who God used to write the letter. Most of the letters in the New Testament will have the human author in the first verse, but we don't have that in the book of Hebrews. So guess what? That's caused a lot of speculation throughout church history. And some say, well, Paul wrote it, and others say Apollos, some say Barnabas, some say Luke, some say Timothy, but we honestly don't know who it is. If you study Paul's letter, like we're studying on Wednesday night, and we're in Romans 3 this Wednesday night, looking forward to that, and you look at the Greek of the, the book of Romans and the other Pauline epistles, and then you look at Hebrew, it's a different style. And so because of that, a lot of people think that Paul wasn't the, the human author, And once you then go down that road, who is it? We don't know. But it could be Paul. It could not be Paul. But God doesn't give it to us. So guess what? We don't know. 
We're going to have to live with we don't know. So you're going to hear me refer to the author of Hebrews as we go through this study. And ultimately, God is the author. It hit me in preparing this study that God did it on purpose because the theme of this book is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So you're not distracted by the human author. Whoever the human author was probably intentionally didn't put his name in there because he says, I'm just going to mess it up. If I put my name in there, it's going to mess things up. I'm going to put the complete focus upon Jesus Christ. We also don't know the exact group that originally received this letter. Like the Church of Rome, we know that they were the ones that first received that epistle, the book of Romans. However, we do know that this is primarily Jews that are receiving this letter because their tendency is they want to go back to the Old Covenant. And there's 82 references of the Old Testament as we go through the book of Hebrews. And so this is the primary group that it's written to, but it's also very beneficial for Gentiles as well to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Time-wise, like when was this letter written is most think that it was prior to the temple being destroyed in AD 70 because there's reference to sacrifices being made in the temple and it's present tense. So the temple is still in existence. So they think it's prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We know from chapter 10 that those who are receiving this letter are going through persecution, the intense persecution of believers. Worsby, Warren Worsby, a great commentator, he gives a really good outline of the book of Hebrews. I'll go slow. I'll try to go slow so you can write it down. The first six chapters are a superior person. So for chapter one through chapter six is a superior person. I bet you can guess who that is. It's Jesus. And then from chapter seven to chapter 10 is a superior priesthood. Once again, you've guessed right, it's Jesus, a superior priesthood. So a superior person, a superior priesthood. And then from chapter 11 to chapter 13 is a superior principle, which is faith. One of the unique things about the book of Hebrews is it exalts Jesus Christ in a very detailed way that's mind-blowing, but throughout the book, it's calling us to respond. It's calling us to take action and apply what we know about Jesus Christ. So chapters 11 through 13 is applying these lessons about Christ through faith. This is a book of evaluation. The word better is used 13 times. So if you come to the conclusion that something is better, you've evaluated, right? If you go, you know, the tacos over here are better than over there, you've evaluated. So better is used 13 times. Perfect is used in terms of standing before the Lord, that you're perfect before the Lord, and that's something that Christ does in our lives. And then eternal is used time and time again throughout this book. So you have Jesus is better, Jesus brings us into perfection, into right standing with God, and then Jesus brings us into eternal blessings. The book of Hebrews is constantly trying to get us to focus on heaven, the anchor of our souls, our real foundation instead of getting focused in on this life. It's also a book of exhortation, a book of exhortation. You're going to hear me referring to five warnings or five exhortations throughout this book. 
And they're very strong exhortations that are given to us. They're very strong warnings that are given to us in the book of Hebrews. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have studied the book of Hebrews verse by verse? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have never studied, like heard a study through the book of Hebrews verse by verse? All right. Awesome. How many of you guys are excited? Sweet. That's all of you. Praise the Lord. So let's look at verse 1 tonight. Focus your attention on verse 1, and let's read down through verse 4. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In this first study, as we see Christ exalted, there's going to be six things that the text points out about Jesus Christ that we'll stand in awe of. This letter begins, God. Have you noticed in the scriptures that the existence of God is something that God never tries to prove? He never apologizes for? He just simply states it. In the beginning was God. This letter just assumes that you believe in God. From a human perspective, we almost think that God should have to explain his existence to us, but God never feels obligated to do that. He simply says, here I am. Creation in and of itself begs that there's a God. So here's our introduction to the letter. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Various times. This is referring to the Old Testament. It's thought that Job is the oldest book in the Bible, meaning that it was the first that was written down chronologically. And it dates about 22 BC. And then the time of Nehemiah is when the book, the Bible, the Old Testament, excuse me, it, it ends. And that's around 400 BC. So various times God communicated over 1800 years in the Old Testament. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He just kept talking. He kept having a message for God's people. As we studied through the book of Judges, it wasn't always pretty for the nation of Israel, but the Lord kept speaking. And then after the book of Malachi, there's silence until John the Baptist comes on the scene. But also God speaks in various ways. So he spoke in various times and he spoke in various ways. One of the ways that God spoke throughout the Old Testament is creation. Psalms 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us that creation even displays the invisible attributes of God. So that's a way that God has spoken. Also, God spoke by our conscience. Those living in the Old Testament, they had a conscience, didn't they? Allowing them to know what's right and wrong before God. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop with creation and the conscience. He also spoke by the prophets. And what a variety that God brings with the prophets. You've got Moses. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. God takes Moses onto Mount Sinai and gives him the commandments. 
that Moses brings to the people of Israel, Ezekiel had to cut his hair and burn it and lay on his side for a thousand days just to get God's message across. God was very creative in his communication to his people through the prophets. Isaiah was asked to preach naked for three years. You can look it up for yourself. Praise the Lord, God hasn't called me to that. (laughs) Amen. And if you think God is calling you to that, he's not calling you to that at Rocky Mountain Calvary. (laughs) I know that you see the security and I see the security too. And if you try that, you're going to have a meeting with the security. (laughs) But for Isaiah, he was called by God to do that for three years. Now, forgive me on this, but there went his tan lines. I mean, that's long enough to totally dissipate all of the tan lines. Too much information, I know. But God did that just to get the attention of his people. And Isaiah was obedient to be able to do that. Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel had visions from the Lord that are in the Old Testament. The last book of the Bible, the last prophet, Malachi, he primarily asks questions. You've got psalms, which are songs in which God communicated to his people. You've got poems in which the Lord spoke. You've got proverbs, all these different ways. Church, I want you to see something tonight that this shows something about God that he loves us enough to communicate. He loves us enough to communicate. He was persistent in his communication. 1,800 years. He was creative in his communication. He wants his people to know who he is and his love. This is a side note, but if God's that committed to communication, we need to be committed to communication as well. Communication's hard work. It's not always easy. Communication's not just speaking. It's making sure that understanding has taken place. It takes persistence. It takes love. It takes creativity. But God loved his people enough to communicate to them. And the greatest way that he's communicated, it's the chief way that he's communicated is verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the ultimate form of God's communication to us. And these last days, he's spoken to us by Jesus. Because what if God would have only communicated through creation? What does creation tell you about God? His power. And it's awe-inspiring. Until you get wiped out in a hurricane. Until you get wiped out in a tornado. It's hard to grasp the personal love of God just by creation. What if it was just your conscience? It was creation and conscience. Well, you would know what's right and wrong, but you wouldn't know of the love of God. What if it was creation, conscience, and the prophets? The prophets really declare the holiness of God. It's only through Jesus Christ that we understand the depths of the love of God, the grace of God, the truth of God. So God loves us enough in his communication towards us, that he would send his son. Now bear with me to try to illustrate this. So you're trying to get communication into someone, through to someone, and you start by creating something that's massive and awesome and intricate and beautiful, and that doesn't fully get the message across. So, so then you try conscience, and that kind of gets the message across. And then you have the prophets do all these different things, and that gets the message across a little more. 
But then it comes time to send your son. Send your child. And your, your child's got to become a man and humble himself. Die a brutal death. All so that God's love could be manifest. If you're doubting whether or not God loves you, you've got to look at Jesus Christ. You've got to look at the fact that Jesus is God's communication to us. Also, verse 2 tells us, in these last days. When you look at the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, those are the prophecies of Jesus Christ. Some are fulfilled in his first coming. The rest will be fulfilled in his second coming. As soon as Jesus came, as soon as Jesus was born of a virgin, it began this season called the last days from a biblical perspective. That's when it began. It began the messianic age. It can be a long age, obviously, because we're still living in that age, but it is the last days from the biblical perspective. The next thing to to take place is the rapture of the church. The next thing to take place is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The authors of the New Testament believe that they lived in the last days. That's them pinning this. So if they believe that, how much more so for us as well? Now describes Jesus Christ for us whom he has appointed heir of all things. So if you're taking notes, the first attribute of Jesus Christ is he is the inheritor. He's the inheritor. He's the heir of all things. It helps me to underline in my Bible, to take notes, maybe underline all things. Psalms 2, speaking of Jesus Christ, tells us that he's going to inherit the nations. All of the nations are going to be subdued by Jesus Christ. And his second coming, it's a literal second coming where he lands on the Mount of Olives, where he rules and reigns in Jerusalem, where the nations come under the rule of Jesus Christ. Don't you long for that day? That's going to be an awesome day. That's the climax of all things and and all of humanity. As God's son, his inheritance is all things. Now, there's two ways to become the inheritance of Jesus Christ. One is to submit to him and receive his grace or to be conquered by him because you resisted him in pride. Does that make sense? So we become his inheritance when we humble ourselves and receive salvation. But if someone hardens their heart to the Lord, then Christ is going to conquer them. The first time he came as a suffering servant, the second time he's going to come as the conquering king It's important to know this in your understanding about who God is. All of this is leading to something. All of this craziness and this madness that we see in the world, it's leading to something. It's leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he's going to be the heir of all things. Also, we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that believers are Christ's inheritance. It says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling, speaking the hope of Jesus' calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Church, this is awesome. This is mind-blowing. Where is his inheritance? Of all of the things that Christ could inherit, he longs to inherit the church. And then Romans eight seventeen tells us that we're co-heirs with Christ. So Christ is the heir of all things, and in his grace to us, he said to every believer, to each of his sons and daughters, you're a co-heir of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've got any earthly inheritance from your parents or your, your grandparents. 
You might be kind of excited if you were one of those that you had a distant aunt or uncle that didn't have kids and decided to leave you $5 million. That'd probably make you pretty excited. Well, I've even got better news. You're co-heirs with Christ, and that's eternal. And that's the grace of God that's granted to all believers. So the first thing about Christ as God's son is he's the inheritor of all things. The second thing about Christ through whom he made the world's. Jesus is the creator. He's the creator. So write that down. Meditate upon it. He is the creator. John 1.1, 1, 1, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the word. That title, the word, is a title given to Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Go back to Genesis 1, take some time to read the first few verses there, and you will see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all active in creation. Christ is the creator of the world. It's important when we think about Christ to grasp all of his characteristics, to not minimize any of them. Friday, I was driving around a little bit, and there's cloud cover throughout the city, don't you love that you can always look west and see the mountains and there's a little bit of snow on the mountains and the lighting was just perfect? I was thinking, wow, God, you created that. Jesus, you created that. You spoke that into existence. And last night, there was a beautiful sunset. Did you happen to catch that? It's a little bit of a bummer that it happened at five, <laughs> but it was beautiful. And God, God created that. A book called A Brief History of Time describes our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is an, is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl and a pastry roll, and that it's over 100,000 light years across, about 600 trillion miles. The book goes on to say, we know now that our galaxy is, one, is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescope, each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. Why did God do that? Why did he create millions of galaxies with countless stars to blow our minds? And we're the generation that knows that. Prior generations had no idea. We know that. We have the telescopes to look out and go, there's galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. This last word here says, and he made the worlds. It's also translated ages. It speaks of time, space, energy, and matter. He made the earth, but he made the galaxies and everything in it. He made all of it. That's Jesus Christ. Next time you sing to Christ, think of him as the creator. Next time you cry out to Christ, think of him as the creator. When you come to him for refuge, he's the creator. He's the inheritor. He's also the creator. Doesn't this just get you excited when you meditate upon Christ in verse 3? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. This is number three, is Jesus is the communicator. Jesus is the communicator. He is the brightness of his glory. So you think of the glory of God, and the brightness of the glory of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus radiates the glory of God. 
when you want to think of and meditate upon and know the glory of God, you've got to meditate upon Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. A bad translation of this is that he's the reflection of his glory. Jesus is not the reflection of the glory of the Father. He's the brightness of his glory. He's the radiator of his glory. He's the source of his glory because Jesus is God. So we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're three distinct persons, but yet one God. To the point where Jesus could say that he's also the express image of his person. In the Greek, this is the exact representation The way they would make coins in the ancient world is they'd have a stamp and put it upon metal and it was an exact representation. So when we look at Jesus Christ, he's the communicator of the Father. It seems to me that a lot of times in our relationship with God, we have an easy time with Jesus and relating to Jesus. I mean, who couldn't relate to Jesus? He walked on this earth. He understands what we go through. But we have a hard time relating to the Father. We find that the Father is unapproachable. And Jesus taught us to approach God as our Father, our Father which art in heaven. But it's difficult for us. And it's important for you to, as you look at Jesus Christ and you appreciate Jesus Christ, you're appreciating the Father. As you study the Gospels and you go, wow, Jesus, here's this woman that was caught in adultery and everybody's saying stone her. And you begin to write on the ground. Don't you want to know what Jesus wrote on the ground? I don't know what he was writing on the ground with his finger, but every one of the accusers started to leave from the oldest to the youngest. So we have an idea. Jesus may have been writing down a date, a time, a place, a lady's name, this, that, and all of a sudden these accusers realized that they were guilty and they left. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? The woman caught in adultery, she said, they've gone. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That's a perfect representation of the Father. Jesus was so confident of this that he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When you read in the Gospels and Jesus looked out onto the multitudes and had compassion upon them and fed the 5,000, that's the heart of the Father. Jesus came to the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, this man who's demon-possessed, who's cutting himself, living in a tomb. No one could control him. No chains could bind him. Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee in a storm just to get him. Jesus casts out the demons. This man is now restored in his right mind. That's a perfect representation of the Father. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, this 12-year-old girl that has died and Jesus speaks to her and brings her back to life. That's a perfect representation of the Father. We can't make this mistake and compare our earthly father to our heavenly father. Your earthly father is not your heavenly father. And no matter what your relationship was like with your father or non-existent, God wants you to relate to him as father. Abba, father, daddy. And Jesus comes and gives us that express image of the Father. John 1 verse 14, speaking of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truths. So here's the inheritor of all things, 
Here's the creator of the universe. Here's God, and he comes in human flesh. All God, all man, mind-blowing. For what reason? So we could behold the glory of God. God wants to communicate with us. Jesus is the communicator. Maybe a good side study would be as we go through the book of Hebrews is read through the Gospels. Say, I want to understand Christ in a greater way. The next thing about Christ is he's the sustainer. If you're still taking notes or meditating on things, he's the sustainer and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. When it says that Christ is upholding all things, this is not passive, it's active. It means that he is actively holding and sustaining all things. That without Christ's hand right now on creation, scientists are still trying to figure out how atoms are held together. I got the answer. It's Jesus. He's holding every single little atom together. Not only did he create all of this, but he sustains all of this. I kind of think of it like a home. How is your home held together? And I'm not speaking about relationships. I'm speaking about laundry, groceries, sweeping the floor, the garage, toilet paper. How's that happen? It's an active process. Has anybody figured out how to hold your house together without it being an active process? And see, God in his creation, it's an active process. Jesus is active every day, holding all things together. Also in the Greek, there's an understanding of him holding all things together is taking one thing from over here and bringing it to over here, passing it from over here to over here. And Jesus' commitment in creation is he's going to bring it to the consummation of all things. He's going to bring it to the fulfillment of all things. When we know from Peter's writing that one day the world will be burned up. Here's an application for us. If God sustains and holds the universe together and will bring it to its final destination. Are you convinced that he'll finish that good work that he started in you? He'll hold you together. He'll hold this church together. He'll hold your family together. Absolutely. He'll hold your marriage together. What's the glue in a marriage? It's Jesus. And maybe you're going through a difficult time in your marriage and you're wondering if you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Turn to Jesus. He'll hold you together. Finances, man, finances are tough, aren't they? Prices go up. They don't go down. Maybe you're struggling, discouraged. How are we going to make it? Christ is going to hold it together. He's going to see you through. He's going to provide David said he'd never seen the righteous begging for bread. God, God's going to be faithful. Got bad news this week. News of a terminal disease. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how my family's going to get through this. You're going to make it. Jesus is going to hold you together. Even if it means that this is what takes you into his presence, ultimately, he's going to hold you together. See how this is so important to understand about Jesus Christ? He's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's the sustainer. The next thing about Christ that we see, it's number five, is he's Savior. 
whom he had by himself purged our sins. I love the way that this is worded. He had by himself purged our sins. It's something that he did apart from us. It's not something that we did. It's something that he did by himself. He accomplished this. So you see this about Christ, heir of all things, creator, communicator, sustainer, and then bam, personal in your life, savior. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus is that. That he's that vast, that powerful, that good, that strong. And yet he cares so personally. It's mind-blowing to me. Is it to you? So here he is, so huge, but yet he cares about my sin to purge little old Eric, sinner Eric, from his mistakes, his rebellion, the wretchedness of his sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is something that the old covenant couldn't do. The animal sacrifice couldn't do. Jesus is greater than those animal sacrifices. He purged us from our sins. He cleansed us from our sins. He took the punishment upon himself so that we could have forgiveness, grace, salvation, eternal life. He's our Savior. When it comes to Savior, when you know Jesus Christ, it's personal, isn't it? It's, it's my sin. It's my punishment. It's my eternal separation from God, but instead God has granted to me forgiveness. There's no greater feeling than the peace of knowing that your sins are forgiven. Money can't buy it. Position can't buy it. Homes can't provide it. Only the blood of Jesus. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't come to that place of turning from your sin and turning to Christ and saying, Christ save me, he's the only one that can save you. It happens through faith. It's not universalism. Universalism is this teaching. There's universalist churches that say everyone's just automatically saved because Jesus died upon the cross and his sins are purged. Everyone's sins are purged all at once. That's not what the scripture tells us. Christ died for everyone and then it's appropriated. It's applied to our account, to our lives as we trust in Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? Tonight's the night of salvation. Jesus is Savior. Here's the last attribute of Christ in the text. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He died, he rose again to purge us from our sins. An important thing about Christ is he ascended. He went back to be with the Father and he's seated upon the throne. Throughout the New Testament, it always refers to Jesus as being seated on the throne with one exception, Stephen. When Stephen was martyred and he saw a vision of Jesus in heaven, Jesus was standing as if Jesus was welcoming Stephen into his presence. The rest of the time, Jesus is seated on the throne right next to to the Father. He's ruler. He's the ruler. And he's seated. The position is important because it's a position of rest. It's not a position of work. He's not upon the throne still trying to do the work for our salvation. It is complete. He's not stressed out about our sin, and he's not stressed out about our situations. Jesus isn't up in heaven going, whew, I've never seen this one before. I'm nervous about their mortgage payment too. I'm nervous about their rent. Whoa, they're really fighting. I've never seen a fight like that before. That's crazy right there. 
He's not stressed out. He's not pulling his hair out. He's seated upon the throne. It's a position of authority. It's a position of honor, the right hand of the Father. We know from the book of Romans, it tells us as Christ is seated on the throne, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So though it's a position of rest and a position of authority, Christ is active because he's praying for us. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing that Jesus would love us like that? That he's constantly going on our behalf to the Father, interceding, saying, God, would you help them? Would you be gracious to them? Would you provide for them? Would you protect them from from temptation right there? Would you protect them from themselves? He ever lives to make intercession for us. What's it going to be like to see Jesus on his throne? What's it going to be like to see him seated next to, to the Father? We're going to find out. It's so hard to see believers leave this life. It's so hard to say goodbye. It hurts. But it's also exciting. That's why God can say that precious in his sight is the death of the saints. That's why there's a part of us as believers where we look forward to that day when we're going to see God. We don't do anything to hasten it and make it come quicker. We want our lives to be used to the fullest of God's glory. But when it's our time, it's our time. We're with the Lord. It's a time of of rejoicing. Verse 4, it really sets up for next week. It says, Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. What was happening to this group of believers is they were falling into the worship of angels. They were beginning to put angels above Jesus Christ. And so the point is, is that Christ is far greater than the angels. And the rest of chapter one is to show us how Jesus is greater than the angels. And that's what we're going to tackle this week. But tonight, what have we seen? Jesus is greater than his character, his attributes. He's the inheritor of all things. Look at the nations as Christ's inheritance. He's going to inherit the nations. And he longs for the nations to come to him in salvation as they turn to Christ as their Savior. You can be used as part of that process of bringing the gospel to the nations. He's the creator. I think out of all people, we should enjoy God's creation more than anybody else because our Father made it, because our Savior made it. Jesus created it for us. So we're starting to get some snow, skiing, snowboarding. If you get an opportunity to go up, man, enjoy it more than anybody else. If someone's up there and they're stoned out of their mind, skiing and snowboarding, which does happen in Colorado, we should be enjoying it more than them. Because we're in our right mind in relationship with our Father. And we can say, far out, man. God made this. And He loves you. Why don't you come to Him? Enjoy His creation. Get out in His creation. Something happens to us when we're in His creation. And we say, Jesus, you created this. Christ is the communicator. He's the radiator of the glory of God. He's the express image of the Father. He's the sustainer. He holds all things together. I wonder if we could see how he's holding together the universe and how he's holding together our lives. He's our savior. He purges us from our sins. He's our ruler who sits at the right hand of the father, ruling over all things. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. C.S. Lewis wrote books called The Chronicles of Narnia. You've probably heard them. And, And Lucy sees Aslan and Aslan is depicted 
as Christ. And she says, Aslan, you've gotten so much bigger. You've gotten so much bigger. And he says, no, Lucy, you've gotten bigger. And what he was declaring, what C.S. Lewis was declaring, was as Lucy grew, Christ grew in her perspective. Aslan grew in her perspective. Does that make sense? So as we grow, Christ becomes bigger. It's not that he actually be, is bigger, but from our perspective, he becomes bigger because we've discovered more of his majesty. And to me, that's growth as a Christian, is understanding more of Christ and who he is and being in relationship with him. I want to close just with some application tonight. As I think we've got it all backwards a lot of times when it comes to the Christian life. And tonight we read a devotional as a family just before church, and it was the importance of trying to emulate Christ. And it said, you know, could anybody perfectly emulate Christ for one day? And I said, no, (laughs) absolutely not. We could not do it. Yet we put all this pressure on ourselves, and this was the tone of the devotional to little kids, is you better act just like Jesus. Come on, act just like Jesus. If you're really serious about it, act just like Jesus. We get our little marching orders, and we go, I'm going to act just like Jesus. Doesn't work, does it? It doesn't go very far. How is the life of Christ manifested in our behavior, church? It's being connected to the source. It's being connected to Jesus. How many times do you see in nature, nature going, create an orange, create an orange, create create an orange. It doesn't work that, that way. The branch is just connected. It's connected, and as it's connected to the trunk, there's fruit. Church, be connected with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Isn't that how you have seen fruit in your lives? Is not going like, I got to do what Jesus would do. I got to say exactly what Jesus would say. All right, I'm going to be a better Christian this week. Growth has happened in my life as I've fallen in love with Christ. I go, wow, you're the creator. Wow, you're my savior. God, you're so good. I want to spend time with you. I want to abide in you. And the more that I'm connected with Jesus, guess what? Bink, there's an orange. It's like, whoa, there's some love in my life that I didn't have before. There's some patience in my life that I didn't have anymore. And this is what I'm seeing a lot in Christian writing is not a lot of Jesus and a lot of behavior modification. There's a lot of systems on how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better parent, how to have more patience. Here's this, here's that, do this, do that. Boo, 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 But there's not a lot of Jesus. And all of those books have their place because they're going to teach you techniques that are helpful. So take them for what they're worth. But they're just a shred compared to Jesus. And as you find the source and you plug into the source, your mind is going to be blown and your life's going to be changed for the glory of God. And please do not diminish Jesus Christ. Don't think for a second, oh, it's just a pat answer. Seek Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. I'll take Jesus first over anything else. That's the answer. It's Jesus. He's greater than. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Jesus, we ask that you would 
expand our understanding of who you are, that we would fall in love with you more, that you'd open up our eyes. We rejoice that you're the heir, you're the inheritor of all things. We rejoice in the fact that you're the creator. We stand in awe of you. We look to you to experience the glory of God. You're the express image of the Father. We thank you for that. We thank you that you're our Savior, that you've purged us from our sins. We thank you that right now you're seated upon your throne. We thank you that you're holding all things together. We end in worship. We end in bowing down before you. God, we know you're the author of salvation. We lift up those that haven't yet surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Let's continue in an attitude of prayer. And as we have meditated upon Christ, and if you haven't yet given your heart and your life to Christ, and you know your sins aren't forgiven, and you've tried everything, you've tried to be a good person, you've tried to be religious, but yet you know that you've never said, Jesus, save me. And tonight, you're understanding in a greater way, in a deeper way, that you're a sinner. And turning away from your sin, repenting from your sin, and saying, Jesus, save me, and putting your faith in him. The gospel's simple, but it's also deep and profound. It's the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and in your heart, through faith, trusting that, surrendering to that. Just like you sat in these chairs tonight, you surrendered to that chair and believed that chair could hold you, and you're surrendering to Jesus and saying, Jesus, be my Savior. I want you to just lift your hand right now, lift it to Christ, and ask him to be your Savior. Praise the Lord. Praise God. I see your hand here. Two hands right here. Praise God. Anybody else say, praise the Lord. Respond to what God's doing in your life. Praise the Lord. Pray with me right now to Christ. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I ask that you would save me and forgive me of my sin. I give you my life. Take control of my life. Be my Lord. Be my master. You can put your hands down. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. You're the author of salvation. Would you bless those that have responded to you? Would you fill them with your spirit and encourage them? In Jesus' name, amen.